Chapter 8 of The Coming People. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Coming People by Charles F. Dole. Chapter 8 The Problem of the Prosperous. Subject a column of water or a boiler full of steam to a tremendous pressure, and you develop a marvelous elasticity latent in every atom of the steam or the water. So with the development of life. You bring out its hidden and divine force and elasticity under stress and pressure. It is another form of the law of cost. Thus, on the physical side, if you want a hardy stock, you put on the pressure of conflict. No race of men was ever good for anything who did not have to fight for their lives, if not with other men, at least with climate and nature. So true is this that, as we have already seen, it is not quite easy to allay the skepticism of those who wonder how men will ever keep their blood fresh in an age of universal peace and plenty. The rule is the same in the development of the mind. The men of the earlier generations in America, battling against poverty, with meagerly equipped colleges, with few books, nevertheless got an education quite comparable for effectiveness with that of their fortunate grandchildren of today. The secret was that they worked under pressure, without which in some form the mind hardly puts forth its full capacity. The precious moralities have come likewise. When have purity, temperance, integrity, and a noble spirit taken on momentum in the world? In those very times when the surface currents ran strictly against them, men and women developed a jealous purity in an age of obscenity and license in cities like Babylon, Rome, and Carthage. The new virtue is always making its way against the current of circumstances. Men never loved liberty so much as when the weight of the slave power pressed upon their souls. Never fear that villainy will do any harm to honor, that corruption will break down justice. When the evil weight accumulates, once given the presence of manhood, the latent elasticity is ready to prevail. Strangely enough, faith in God has never failed in evil times. When the faithful stood alone, when martyrs went to the stake, the law of faith is that it grows stout-hearted under stress. The problem of the prosperous now begins to appear. The prosperous classes, never before so numerous, are everywhere trying to evade this strenuous law of effort and pressure, through which, as we have seen, life grows sturdy. They command easy and luxurious physical conditions for their children. Their children are required to do nothing which service can be hired to do for them. Teachers are paid to learn their lessons for them. Extravagant pains are lavished on their pleasures. Religion also must be made very easy. Children must be let off from religious observances which they do not happen to fancy. We have the extraordinary spectacle of a generation which owes its success to its obedience to the stern stress of necessity, trying with all its might to contrive to take away from its children the very conditions that made its own life hardy and virile. Moreover, the circumstances of modern society readily exempt the individual, if he chooses, from his normal share of public responsibility. In the old days, the employer lived close to his men, for whose welfare he was obviously responsible. The wealthier educated citizen was a marked man, to whom his community naturally looked for public service. Wealth and education thus created an obligation of leadership. If there were particles of steel in the body politic more carefully tempered than the rest, it was in order that they should act together in the cutting edge of the tool. We have changed all that. Modern business is organized on so colossal a scale that millions of employees hardly see the captains of their industry. Thousands of persons draw income from factories, mines, and railroads, which they have never visited. 
boards of directors sheltering themselves behind their corporate capacity approve or share the proceeds of transactions for which any individual member of the vast corporation might be ashamed personally to avow himself responsible what is more startling great communities of wealthy people removing their homes from the bustle and din of the working world build up stately rows of palaces or fill great parks with their splendid villas there is a single town in massachusetts rich enough in men of education and resources to lead a score of colonies such as established the commonwealth in the beginning the fathers or grandfathers of these men were natural leaders cheerfully carrying civil responsibilities in a hundred new england towns but this well-to-do class today so largely endowed with all the capacities to make responsible leaders for the city the state the nation are merely private citizens often too careless of their civil duties to take the trouble to vote youths grow up in the wealthy homes of beacon street and fifth avenue on whom no serious burdens rest who believe that their chief function in life is to be ornamental to travel abroad to sail yachts to discover pleasure there was a greek word idiotes which meant one who counted for nothing in the state our word idiot comes from the old root we are rearing thousands of such political idiots it is as if we had withdrawn the tempered particles of the steel from the cutting edge of the tool and had planted them in the haft where the costly temper could do the least possible good all this is bringing the natural consequences of injured law while it is not necessary to urge that society or the nation has actually deteriorated while we chronicle a fair measure of improvement in the course of the century it is none the less obvious that we confront very grave social political and economic evils as our industrial machinery becoming more and more complicated delicate and at the same time colossal in its proportions requires greater skill patience care and accuracy in its management as the steel ship presents new problems greater than the little coasting shallop had to meet so the problems of modern society demand not merely men as good as our fathers but even better and more thoroughly equipped men the more intricate social complications require not only good individuals but more effective organization among them is it not evident that mere individualism irresponsible and unsocial however well-intentioned it may be has had its day or if individualism is always good the signs of the times point to the need of a higher and more social order of individualism waste and mischief on a vast scale already menace us at a time when society needs peculiarly faithful honest and well-directed service we find our great cities under the role of bosses rings and machines we see our national government in distinctly partisan hands surrounded by a corrupting atmosphere of mercenary scandal how many men in our congress can we fully trust whom can we name whose one test question at every issue is what is for the best good of the whole american people we see likewise new forms of industrial development inevitable doubtless but all the more strenuously calling for splendid and conscientious leadership the great industries of the world generally organized into trusts syndicates department stores and combines are as yet at the mercy of the unscrupulous of adventurers of egotists whom no one knows how to call to account at one end of the scale is a multitude of workmen often altogether out of employment or again sadly embittered by their suspicions of the selfishness of their employers while on the other hand is an increasing number of prosperous and educated people largely members of churches whose chief concern is not to meet their responsibilities like men and to bring about better human conditions so much as to keep comfortable maintain the level of their salaries and incomes and like the selfish old king of judea in the face of the impending babylonian deluge to have peace at last in their time such men as these with a master purpose to make money and a light emphasis on human welfare 
without adequate sense of the tremendous obligations of social and industrial leadership, without any passion for justice, cannot be expected today to succeed in the task of administering the powers of the world and distributing its wealth. Meantime, the freedom from weights, pressure, and responsibilities means no increase of joyous life. Joy, in fact, mysteriously depends upon the law of cost. What comes for nothing brings no thrill of life. The man whose face tells the story of the happy life is he whose elastic soul most often responds to grand duties and carries willing burdens. Where do you find the pessimist who question whether life is worth living? They are not among the toilers. They are not commonly the poor. They are not the uneducated and unthinking. The doubters and pessimists are in the classes who owe most for their splendid opportunities and yet give the least in proportion to their endowments. No wonder that men and women who are trying to evade a primal law do not find life greatly worth living. So much for the problem of the prosperous. How can they possibly sail as idle passengers on the grand ship of our modern civilization through fogs and storms requiring the utmost skill, wisdom, and courage? We cannot go back a hundred years to the old-fashioned sailing vessel or keep ourselves safe on land. Civilization can take no backward course to Arcadian simplicity. Shall we then, as some stoutly urge, choose the venturesome path of social revolution and displace the prosperous from their easy seats? We shall have occasion to discuss this proposition in a later chapter. For the present, it is enough to say that social revolution does not solve our first and main problem. The problem is to find men of intelligence, capacity, training, fitness, and honor to manage our immense and costly machinery. No revolutionary theory shows us where to get capable leaders. When those who ought to be leaders evade the obligations of leadership, the fact that we punish and degrade them does not help us to provide this rare quality of humane, patriotic, and high-minded leadership. Admit that a higher order of humane society will be evolved. All the more is the need of great, earnest, wise, and devoted leaders to effect the change. The average citizen cares little for any mere issue between the ins and the outs. Inefficient as the ends are, he supposes that the outs may be more hungry and wasteful. The average citizen wants to see the grand business of industry, government, and civilization performed with security and efficiency. He begins to perceive that selfish leaders can fit only a narrow and selfish type of society, that irresponsible leaders can never fit or serve anywhere, that a civilized society, a truly Christian nation, must somehow produce civilized leaders and rulers, gentle and brave, men of humanity, men of faith. We are ready to see the answer to our problem. Men must somehow obey the vital law of pressure. By a new turn in the spiral of evolution, the old and barbarous pressure of outward necessity and brute conflict is taken away. It is the mark of civilization that men already emerge into a comparative immunity from the ancient stress of hunger and cold. We see how to provide quite generously for the necessities of vast populations. New inventions put off indefinitely the Malthusian terror of serious overcrowding. Over one great area of the world, we have largely got rid of the old burdens of militarism, race feuds, and national jealousy. But the law still holds. It only changes its form. It becomes a moral or spiritual necessity. Relieved of the weight of pressure from without, the man must take upon himself the willing constraint of self-imposed responsibility. He must become ethical if he would live and thrive. In short, education, resources, means, leisure, aptitudes, all constitute an increasing obligation of service, and, if required, of public and disinterested leadership. Is a man prosperous? That is, has he thrown off all fear of hunger and cold and destitution? Let him know that he must needs take on himself a whole new order of larger and unselfish concerns, of cares for his neighbors, for his workmen, 
for the poor, for the state, for the welfare of humanity. Shame on him if he evades the very burdens which his happy position has brought upon his shoulders. Let him hear the ringing call to his manhood from Emerson's Boston hymn. And ye shall succor men, tis nobleness to serve. Help them who cannot help again, beware from right to swerve. It is very encouraging to find how many individuals there are who hold all that they possess in trust for the welfare of mankind. A considerable class also, while they adopt the old world idea of their own individual property rights, are ready to make valuable concessions and acknowledgement of obligations which they rather vaguely feel that they owe to society. They generously endow hospitals and colleges out of their plethoric surplus, but the great aim of the prosperous class is still everywhere to enable their children to enjoy themselves. The wonderful appliances of modern education are thus misdirected. The law of pressure and effort by which physical vigor, intellectual power, character, personality, joy, and life are developed is practically denied at school and in college. Even the church lays no real stress on it. We are not, however, without conspicuous examples of a type of education that is exactly fitted to meet the present needs of society and to fit the nobler nature of man. Let me illustrate my meaning of what all education ought clearly to do. A very distinguished educator, General S.C. Armstrong, built up a great institution for the blacks and the Indians at Hampton, Virginia. The keynote of his teaching was the responsibility of educated men and women. Why were the few picked out of the millions of their brethren and lifted to the level of advanced civilization? Was it that they might earn a better living than others, that they might constitute an aristocracy of superior persons, that their better houses, skill, industry, and culture might give them privileges over their people? On the contrary, these select black boys and girls were given this costly endowment that they might henceforth be more heavily and directly responsible for their race, that if they earned more than the others, they might show others the way to earn also, that if they established true homes, they might make such homes inspiring examples for others to pattern after, that if they stood above the rest, they might lift the whole level to a permanently nobler humanity. This was the Hampton idea of education. Whenever a boy caught this master idea, he was destined henceforth to live under the self-imposed pressure of a noble responsibility for his race and the nation. He was a man bought with a price. Is it not evident that here is an idea that, whenever seized, makes a man a citizen of the universe? He has come under universal laws and conditions. He has ceased to be a mere egotist, a dilettante, a mercenary. If black men and women can be possessed with such an idea, if they can devote their larger earnings, their better social position, their superior skill and culture for high and generous ends, if they can feel the great humanitarian responsibilities of our age and stand at the front to meet its problems, what shall we say of the youth of the Anglo-Saxon stock, with their still more costly education, with their rich and ennobling traditions of liberty, literature, laws, and religion? Who can measure what they who have inherited the wealth of the ages owe to the world? Or can it ever be said that anyone has received a university training who, however much he knows of the details and detached fragments of learning, has not yet comprehended that fundamental conception of a divine universe, which brings these details and fragments into orderly, beautiful, and harmonious relations with the life of our common humanity? Here is everything to stir the chivalrous heart of youth. The same law of pressure which in brutal times seemed a cruel bondage to necessity, which in the animal world meant only the survival of the strongest, which in the competitive struggle for bread seemed to foster selfishness, which, when only half understood, as in Mr. Kidd's book on social evolution, has been translated so as to set the reason of man in revolt against his religion, 
is now lifted to the level of the free and willing action of conscious moral agents. It is transferred from the realm of outward forces to the inner and spiritual kingdom. It now becomes the pressure of human sympathy, of duty, of social ideals. Already many appear as typical men of the new era, thoughtful, observant of facts, reverent of law, who not only know the splendid secret, but bow in enthusiastic willingness to accept the weight and obligations of an educated and civilized human life, the life of a son of God. We thus find that a deep necessity is at work in human society, pressing men almost in spite of themselves to fulfill the marvelous prophecy of social good with which we started. That modern society may hold together, that industries may be permanently organized, that governments may work out their legitimate ends, yes, that men of means and brains may have solid happiness and their children may maintain the honor of their families. It becomes increasingly necessary that the rule of the world shall be, as Jesus foresaw, in the hands of the gentle and friendly. The names of Mark Hopkins, Samuel C. Armstrong, and Seth Lowe in education, of Governor Andrew, Sumner, and Carl Schertz in politics, of George Peabody, Peter Cooper, and Mrs. Hemingway in generous beneficence, are arrows pointing where the great and perennial trade winds blow. End of chapter 8